You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the next big trade. I'm your host, Harry Malandri from MI2 Partners. On this program, I'll talk to some of the world's foremost traders about current trends in markets and what they believe is a smart bet. We'll hear about their career journeys and, of course, find out what they're targeting as their next big trade. Enjoy the show. Welcome to the next big trade and thanks for joining us. This week, I'm talking to David Rosenberg. David's one of the biggest names in global macro. Of course, that's if you think global macro has big names. Some people might argue with that. <laughs> um, I followed his argument since the late 90s, and I think we've met a couple of times professionally. Uh, once was when I was a real money manager with Aberdeen or Deutsche or whatever it was called, and once when I was at Brevin Howard. I really hope David doesn't remember me, uh, because if he remembers me, it means I must have been a giant asshole in that meeting. So I'm kind of hoping he, he blanks on me a bit. Um, to complete David's bio, which is kind of what people do, he then moved to Gluskin Chef to be the chief economist and strategist. And as I understand it, you're now running your own show, David, at the Rosenberg Research and Associates. Have I got that even half right? 100%. That's unusual for me. <laughs> um, so uh, forgive me, David, but you're my third favorite Canadian after Leonard Cohen and Norm MacDonald, rest in peace. I wondered if you knew any good jokes. Uh, I know a lot of good jokes. It's a matter of which would be the ones most appropriate for public consumption, because uh, then it gets uh, uh, it gets very limited. Well, you know, I think most people listening to uh, macro podcasts are probably above 18. Um, if they're not, then their parents should be you know, people should be doing something about that kind of child abuse. So, uh, you know, you feel free to pipe up with any jokes at any point. It will humanize us. And God knows I need humanizing if nobody else does. But, you know, at this point, I normally say, you know, talk about yourself for a bit. But I think everybody knows you, right? And if you don't know you, there's such a thing as Google. So I could always <laughs> look you up. Um, so rather than do that, I thought it'd be better if, you know, let's not talk about the investment thesis right now, but what's in the news that's catching your attention? So anything apart from the investment thesis out there that's that's like you're looking at and particularly interested in? Is that, uh, so you're saying outside of the realm of markets and investments and the economy? No, in the realm of, you know, like I know what your next big trade is, mm. but I didn't want to talk about that right, right here. Is there something that's kind of catching your attention or got, with me, it's just, I'm a hundred percent Ukraine, Russia war. I'm like staring at this thing all the time. Okay, fair enough. So you too, you're you're looking at Russia, Ukraine, Russia war, and becoming really au fait with missile tech. You know, I, I think that um, you know, bigger picture is uh, just how the the world is is splintering up because you know before the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we were talking about a different Cold War too, which was China and the United States. So this is just uh, added on a different layer of complexity of how uh, what we thought was the world order is becoming world disorder on a, on a much different level. So uh, I'm also looking at how this relationship with China and Russia is evolving at the same time and what that means for the future. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm 100% with you on this. I was staring, I, mean, I got asked by my boss to look into this question of US trade relations with China. And, you know, one of the fun things about foreign affairs is quite often people tell you exactly what they have in, have planned. So you, as you read through the foreign affairs mag or wherever you're reading, you, your eyes widen thinking, oh my God, I can't believe they've got to put, they're planning that. That would be a disaster. I can't believe it. And then, and then you know, they someone wins an election, they go into office and the guy who wrote the article is now, you know, national security advisor. And yeah, they implement they implement. They, 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 when people tell you what they're planning, your first first approximation should be to assume they're telling you the truth. So um, the Russia thing has caught my eye. That's a, in another brick in the wall. The China thing looks like it's still going ahead. 
by the time this is over, we'll be it'll be back to the eighties in so many different ways, you know. But, huh. but let's um, talk about you know your next big trade. Tell me your investment thesis. Well, I would say that uh, the next big trade is going to be, and this will surprise a lot of people, but within a year, I think it'll be the return to deflation and away from today's headline news on inflation. And I don't believe that globalization is going into full reverse. Uh, I think that the problems of excessive indebtedness and aging demographics are going to come back into vogue. I think we're going to go into a bear market in housing and equities. Uh, the equity part has already started. And that the asset deflation is going to morph into consumer deflation. And that I think everybody's got the story half-assed backwards. I think they're looking too much at the near term and not at the forest past the trees. So what the trade is to be long, long duration? You'd buy the long end of the curve? I would posit that without and nobody can time the market, but uh, the treasury market is radically oversold. Uh, the prevailing view is that we're into a new era of secular or structural inflation. Supply bottlenecks will never be repaired. Uh, we're going to have a wave of onshoring that's going to lead to annual cost increases uh, and that uh, we have a, a whole new emboldened labor market on our hands and the prospect of a wage price spiral. Uh, I don't really believe any of that, uh, but that's become very quickly in the past year the mainstream thought. Uh, this time last year, the inflation rate was uh, 1.4%. Uh, we're now talking about going uh, above 8% on the inflation rate, and I understand that. Uh, and nobody has been able to provide me with an adequate definition of what transitory really means. Of course, the Fed has abandoned that term, and today uh, you're almost viewed as though you have leprosy if you other the word tra transitory. But we've been hit with a variety of uh, supply-side shocks in the past couple of years that has radically constrained the global supply curve. It's created this inflation. The demand aspect of it is really in the rearview mirror. Uh, and so I think that, yes, I think that the surprise will be, by definition, that we reverse course into disinflation. The Fed, of course, is going to overdo it on the tightening side like they always do and precipitate the conditions for a recession. Of course, fiscal policy is also tightening. So yeah, I think if you give me a 12-month span, allow me that period of time, I think Treasury yields at the back end of the curve are going to be materially lower than they are today by at least 100 basis points. So this is probably the single most debated question in macro today. And it, it often is, you know, are we inflating or deflating or, you know, what's going to happen? And very recently, we've had these enormous inflation numbers, which have biased the argument quite strongly in one direction. You know, I talk regularly with uh, Raul Pal and also with Julian Brigden. They kind of do a, a thing called... Um, uh, insider talks where they debate these things and you know Raul is on your on your side or in your camp if you will and Julian's on the other side so I, I regularly get exposed to both sets of arguments not necessarily as elegantly uh, put as your you'd put them but um how is it you are you, ha you can have such a degree of certainty about this outcome because after all if you got this right there's a lot of basis points to play for here. You can make a lot of money on this trade. And the problem is that this has been a bit of a falling knife. So what is it that is the dominant, you know, you've done your research. What is it that makes you so sure that you're not going to get this one wrong? Well, look, um, I've been in this business for 35 years and I've learned two things, uh, which is that uh, you don't put all your eggs in one basket and that there is no such thing as a sure thing. So, uh, it's my base case call. I'm not going to even say that it's necessarily a dramatically high conviction call. I, I think that we have a uh, such a high level of uncertainty uh, politically, economically, financially, that um, we just have a, a, a much wider range of possible outcomes that I could remember in my professional career. But it's one of these situations where something that has a 40% chance of happening uh, is your base case scenario because everything else is 5, 10, or 15%, and you can't really rule anything out. 
So this is my base case. Uh, I'm not going to say that it's the only case. You have to have uh, you have the scenario built in the forecasting business, especially when your forecasts uh, are uh, aimed at uh, portfolio managers and CIOs and professional investors. So you don't have a plan B. What's your plan? Um, I think we have a wild gyration around a fundamental trend line. And the fundamental trend line for the past, say, 40 or 50 years has been towards disinflation. Yeah. Uh, and people say, well, you know, a big part of that was globalization. Uh, and I don't know how you want to date globalization. You know, globalization to me started potentially, you could argue, with the Industrial Revolution. Uh, you can argue that, um, you know, with uh, the Wealth of Nations and the Marshall Plan, uh, you can talk about a whole bunch of events, uh, you know, the the, the gap round of negotiations uh, on global uh, trade barriers coming down, um, which culminated in 1979 with the Tokyo round on services, that's all part of globalization. Globalization, I mean, people talk about globalization as though it's like just uh, it happens overnight or that its reversal will happen overnight. Uh, I mean, talking about globalization and your inflation forecast, I mean, it's like watching, it's a race between watching grass grow and paint dry and talk about globalization. <laughs> I can understand that, That um, look, we, we've had these double shocks uh, that have put a lot of question marks in the way of uh, how countries and companies uh, that are global in nature are going to access uh, their inventory and the supply chains. And of course, over time, that's going to change. Uh, I don't really believe it's going to be that noticeable over short periods of time. Uh, and at the same time, we can't ignore the fact that the fundamental forces of excessive indebtedness, and there's just so much more debt coming out of the um, out of the uh, coronavirus. Uh, we fought it with a lot of debt. Uh, and, uh, you know, people talk about how the household sector is stuffed with so much savings uh, because of stimulus checks that haven't been spent yet, but that was on borrowed money. That wasn't money that somehow productivity out of the economy generated. Uh, we have in the United States, take for an example, the all-in total economy at every level, uh, government, business, household, uh, debt to GDP is 350%. So it's never been that high at a cycle peak. Uh, we've actually higher now than we were back during the housing bubble of 06 and 07. Uh, and so the excessive indebtedness is a future tourniquet or constraint on aggregate demand. Uh, that is fundamentally disinflationary. Uh, there's a big debate about aging demographics. Uh, COVID uh, and the war, uh, the Russian invasion, uh, hasn't stopped the fact that the industrialized world is getting older. Uh, there's a whole set of debate as to whether or not that's inflationary or dis disinflationary, but you have to ask yourself the question, why is it that the two oldest countries, the countries with the most aging demographics, which is China and Japan, have the lowest inflation rates. It's fundamentally disinflationary, not from the supply of labor standpoint, uh, but because of what it means for domestic demand. Yeah. Uh, as you get older, you tend to spend less in the economy. You certainly spend less on areas that are cyclically sensitive, accentuated by uh, 5G. Uh, the productivity numbers are mismeasured. Uh, people go wild over four 4% uh, wage growth, but if productivity is running at 2%, which is double what it's been the past number of decades, then uh, unit labor costs are running at 2%, and I refuse to hyperventilate over 4% uh, wage inflation when productivity is actually picking up. And that's one of the things that a lot of people missed was that, you know, during the worst parts of the COVID-led recession, uh, the one thing that kept on rising, even as the economy locked down in 2020, was corporate spending on automation. Uh, and software in R&D. Uh, that went up over 6% in real terms, even as the economy contracted. Uh, and the productivity numbers have actually, on the supply side, something nobody talks about. We talk about global supply chains being disrupted, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, I don't think that's going to necessarily be permanent. Uh, it's been worsened by how China's treating um, you know, their, their current um, COVID breakout by shutting down port cities, including Shanghai, 25 million people. Um, that has a near-term inflationary impact, but productivity uh, is more secular and structural. And productivity growth, which, by the way, is an inflation killer that uh, did not exist in the 1970s. In the 1970s, what was technology? It was a, a Panasonic radio and a, tra uh, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a transistor, uh, I mean, and an IBM 
mainframe. That was technology in the 70s. Lots of powerful disinflationary forces at work uh, that are being swamped right now by the supply shocks that came first out of COVID and now out of the uh, Russian uh, invasion of the Ukraine. Uh, so those things are transitory. Uh, maybe 12 months, maybe it could be 24 months. All I can tell you is this. The last time that we had a double shock of this magnitude was a century ago. We had World War I and then the Spanish flu. Uh, this time around, we had a global pandemic and then a war. Then we had a war and a pandemic. And for four years, you know, from 1916 to 1919, inflation averaged 15% per year. Uh, but you don't see that written about. Maybe during the time period, I mean, there's no social media back then, uh, and, and Larry Summers wasn't born yet. Uh, so, uh, you know, we had four years of 15% inflation. And once those shocks subsided, and the, the shocks subsided, and the, these shocks will subside, the CPI averaged negative 2% per year for the next decade. And uh, I'm not saying that the way the CPI is constructed, we can get to negative 2%. But I think the surprise will be once these shocks subside, that inflation is going to come down more quickly and more uh, structurally. Uh, I, I'm taking the other side of the inflation bet, don't you see? Uh, and that's why, considering how much inflation and in Fed is priced into the Treasury curve right now, my forecast mandates me to be bullish on the long end of the curve. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Yeah. So that point you make about globalization. It's a fantastic point. Uh, in fact, you made two. One was that globalization has been a trend. I did a piece for my, my boss asked me to write something up on the subject of uh, some Bank of England, Bank Underground pieces talking about uh, uh, long-term inflation. So Paul Schmelzing, uh, who's a Harvard academic, spent a, a couple of years at the Bank of England and on sabbatical and wrote up this piece about tracking the 700-year history of inflation. And the bottom line is that inflation peaked in the 14th century at about uh, 15 to 20 percent in, you know, in, the, in the biggest of big pictures, like stupidly big, big pictures, and has been kind of coming down ever since, uh, with the odd exception. Now, what happened in the 14th century? Uh, well, there were you know there were a bunch of wars, but most in particular there was a plague, and there was also I think the fall of Constantinople. And the fall of Constantinople was important because, you know, whatever agreements you had with the previous authorities when you were importing spices uh, to Europe or silks, uh, you had to reestablish new trade routes. So I'd, I'd argue that we have the same thing now, that we've got a set of supply chains that uh, we'd been developing for 40 years, and those are currently disrupted because of China's zero COVID policies or uh, a war in Ukraine. They won't stay disrupted for the next 10 years, um, but they may stay disrupted for the next two years because, you know, we have bottlenecks in how many ships we, we have and so forth and so on. Um, if that's the case, we could have something quite similar to the uh, 1918 uh, four years of inflation that you just outlined. But Am I going to get the money back I lose if I buy two-year notes? That money's gone, right? If if we get 7% inflation for four years, I am not going to get whole because I'm never going to get negative 7% inflation in the future four years. So those bonds just roll off and I, I lost money. Doesn't that complicate the decision on when to get long of, long of paper? Well, you could say the same thing about um, about any financial asset. If you have that view that we're going to have four years of 15% inflation, you don't want to own bonds. Uh, I would say you don't necessarily want to own stocks. Uh, yeah. you, you, you'd you want to probably own gold or precious metals or, look, there's a variety of commodities that have secular tailwinds um, related to, you know, the greening of the world. But, um, you know, is a two-year note. Two-year note is as, 
It doesn't have much duration. It's as close to cash. You're going to lose out with inflation. But, you know, um, let's say let's say you had inflation at 7% and the central banks have to raise interest rates dramatically and your home price is down 20%. Where you're better off being in housing than being in a two-year note. Let's say they create the conditions for a bear market in equities. Now, I'm not going to play a relative game here, but tell me in the recession of 19. 19- 80 then we had the double dip in 81 82 tell me how well how well did the stock market do in that environment see here's the thing um All right inflation is not a surprise it, it's hard to go back to the literature uh but you can go back to the 1970s where you can argue it was a slow creep from the great society spending of the 60s and the vietnam war but then he had in the 70s went off the gold standard and uh you had uh Richard Nixon uh, pressuring Arthur Burns uh, not to raise rates. Now we have a totally different situation. Kindergarten children know about inflation. Inflation is not a surprise. Inflation came as a surprise to the Fed and to the general public in the 1970s. Of course, we had oil go from $3.50 before the embargo in 73, and then it peaked at $39.50 in uh, March of 1980. Uh, and so we had a recurring set of shocks in a much more oil-dependent country. Of course, the shocks now, you could argue, it's not just oil, but we do know that oil feeds into core. Uh, oil feeds into everything, feeds into, um, you know, fertilizer. Uh, how you, you know, feeds into uh, diesel and tractor farming and all sorts of leakages. But of course, this is much bigger than the 1970s. It's sure. much more broadly based. I don't deny that for a second. But A, it's not a surprise. The bond market's priced it in in a much bigger hurry. Uh, and the Fed's not caught by surprise. You know, yes, yes, let's say that the Fed got transitory wrong. They they butchered their call. It's only been a year. This has not been 10 years. It's not the 1970s. One year. Uh, inflation this time last year was 1.4%. Okay, we last time the inflation rate has gone up this much in a 12-month span was back in 1951. Uh, so we did actually have a special set of circumstances. We had a global pandemic that, uh, that had a much bigger impact on the global supply curve than the demand curve because fiscal policy, you know, went in a overdrive, especially in the United States. Mm. Uh, if we didn't have the fiscal stimulus, demand would have imploded. Uh, what the Fed did, well, I guess you could argue that continuing to buy mortgage-backed securities just added more juice to the fire in the housing market. But most of what the Fed did was really influencing Wall Street and asset inflation more than Main Street. But that was fiscal policy, and we had several rounds yeah. of mega fiscal stimulus. But that's now in the rearview mirror, right? That is in the rearview mirror. The question is going forward, what is demand going to be looking like? We've had repeated series of supply shocks. We did have massive fiscal and monetary response that had an influence on demand. So you can't just say, and I'm not going to say that the inflation was only supply. And you're quite right. The supply situation is still problematic because of the war, because of the way that China it's draconian measures to deal with its uh, its breakout. Uh, and we don't know how many more port cities of millions of people <laughs> that Beijing is going to feel it has to shut down. That has that has cost implications. There's no doubt about it. Who can forecast how much longer, especially for a country that you think with an 85% vaccination rate, uh, nobody else in the world is doing this. But then again, China and uh, Asia uh, is central to the global supply chain hub that's problematic i understand that i but who can sit here who's smart enough to know how far the supply bottlenecks are going to last who really knows that but here's what i know with a i'd say a a modicum of certainty which is the demand side and that's what's changing because this time last year for example this time last year the fed was still easing policy they were still buying treasuries they were still buying mortgage backs they were still de facto cutting interest rates synthetically through the balance sheet that's over and this time last year fiscal policy 
was adding three percentage points to GDP growth. GDP is demand. But by the end of this year, and we can tip our hat, I suppose, tip our hat to Joe Manchin, the fiscal swing is to negative three percentage points of GDP by the end of the year. This is a monumental swing from stimulus to restraint in fiscal policy, and that is with Build Back Better, which you really have to capitalize over many, many years. You can't do infrastructure yeah. in year one. So uh, the fiscal policy is a huge drag, and we're just starting to see that now. And then monetary policy, like why, why would you be bearish on treasuries? I just would pose the question. When you have Jay Powell four weeks ago, at his semi-annual congressional testimony in response to questions from Senator Shelby from Alabama. And Powell says, the, the conversation is about Paul Volcker. And Jay Powell says, well, he says it twice, not just once, that Paul Volcker was the greatest public servant of the era. So there he is comparing himself to Paul Volcker. Well, what's it Paul Volcker to? Paul Volcker took... A decade of supply shocks that triggered sustainable inflation and killed it with demand contraction because the Fed can't influence the supply curve, but the Fed can influence the demand curve. For those people out there that think the Fed cannot control inflation, just watch and see. Uh, they are going to be tightening policy aggressively. They believe their credibility has been, attack has been attacked. They have a president who has given them the nod to raise it. I've never, I, I don't think anyone of us have ever seen this before, a president giving the nod to interest rate hikes. And the Fed has already told you, and even the doves have become hawks. Uh, they are putting inflation ahead of growth. Of course, they might have their own view of what the economy looks like. I don't share that view. Uh, but the Fed has basically just told us enough is enough. Uh, We'll see if we have a recession or not, um, but to suggest that the Fed can't nip this in the bud, I think bears. There's there's nothing in history to suggest that. No, David, I'm absolutely sure that the Fed has it in its power to to nip this in the bud. Where nip this in the bud means sending a lot of people, you know, kick a lot of people out of employment. I remember, was it Solo? I think it's Robert Solo from from Recollection who said that Paul Volcker. Uh, uh, his his actions in monetary policy were the equivalent of burning down a house to roast a pig. <laughs> um, and so there's no doubt in my mind the Fed has it in its power to, to send us into a big recession. I'm not convinced that sending us into a big recession will kill inflation over the next two years. I, I hate, hate it when people trivialize complicated issues like inflation, which is, you know, it's not a well-understood phenomena, frankly. But but I would ca roughly characterize the inflation we see as kind of cost push, even though it's a pretty dumb way to characterize anything that we don't really understand. But uh, cost push inflation, you, you might well find that we the Fed drives us into a recession and we still get elevated levels of inflation over the next two years, even if we subsequently get incredibly low levels of inflation afterwards because the Fed drove us into, uh, into a recession. And that whole transitory like mess, I, I'm an ex-Bank of England person. I'm, I'm pretty sure the Bank of England wishes I wasn't, but uh, I am an ex-Bank of England person. And I remember a lot of this was about drafting, appropriate use of language. And when I saw the word transitory, I thought to myself, that's a perfect central banker phrase, because what exactly isn't transitory? Right? Human existence itself may well be transitory. So the odds are that, yes, the inflation we currently experience will be transitory. I just couldn't tell you if it's a one-year, two-year or 10-year phenomena, but I'm pretty sure this too will pass. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Um, the, the, the thing that concerns me, like, I, I'm with you, I agree that the central bank has just told you that they're going to get medieval on our levels of demand. 
um, that they're going to that they want to defend their credibility. And the president just told you that he thinks inflation is a vote loser. And of course, it's a vote loser. He's a Democrat, right? Democrats presiding over inflation are vote losers. So I see everything you see, um, and I'm sympathetic with this trade. Uh, it's just about timing, getting it right. This thing has been a complete falling knife. So how, to paraphrase Whitney Houston, how will I know when bonds really love me? What would you look for to know when to do this, to pull the trigger on this? Well, it's not going to come from necessarily from any piece of economic data. And let me, I'll get to that in a second. But look, the, the Fed answered the question already. Uh, I mean, they started to, quote, pivot again, uh, probably around November. Uh, inflation really... Uh, was running in the low ones in March of last year. Mm -hmm. uh, so you could say that maybe transitory to them was six to nine months. It wasn't a year, it wasn't two years. And then they realized um, we're on the wrong side of the call. And so uh, to me, it doesn't matter anymore. Um, they're going to make up for a, a lot of lost time. Anybody that was saying, well, the Fed blew it, the Fed blew it, they, they can make up for a lot of lost ground. It's going to be painful. So the markets think they could raise rates 50 basis points in the next couple of meetings and then just keep going. And the consensus is that they're going to just keep going. And, of course, the Fed usually keeps going until something breaks. Yeah. Uh, and usually the break is somewhere in the financial markets because that's really how the Fed influences policy into the real economy is through the financial markets. So um, it's not much different, actually. We can go back, you know, to Volcker. Look, Alan Greenspan in 1992 was talking about, you know, 60-mile-an-hour headwinds in front of the economy and the credit crunch. Uh, by October 1993, a year later, he, he, he pivoted himself. And a few months later, the funds rate is going from 3% to 6% in the span of a year, taking out Orange County, the Mexican... Uh, peso crisis, we had a couple of mortgage funds go under, uh, and they went 300 basis points in the span of a year. Now that's nostalgia. That's my youth you're talking about. Well, what was was, was was the credit crunch and 60 mile an hour headwinds in 1992 coming out of the 1991 recession? Uh, that was, was that transitory? The Fed, the Fed will always switch gears. They've always switched gears. They switch gears again. Yes, they made a bad call. They're human beings. They're not robots. We all make bad calls. It might be true that they have 300 PhD economists working for them. But, you know, we've had, you know, 14 Fed hiking cycles in the post-World War II experience. 11 landed the economy in recession. Three got us soft landings in the mid-60s, mid-80s, and mid-90s. But they were exogenous, positive shocks that prevented the recession from happening. We'll see what happens this time around. Uh, the point I'm making is that um, inflation will come down. The question is by how much? And I, I know that it will come down with a high degree of certainty on this score because mm. demand is going to uh, either contract or slow dramatically. Inflation is always really about two curves, uh, supply and demand. And we have to know two things about these curves, supply and demand. We have to know what their shape is and we have to know how they're moving. So we know that the supply curve has become inelastic because of the supply curve, the supply chain issues. We all know that. And the labor market, who doesn't know that? And the supply curve has shifted to the left. And now the Fed is going to take the demand curve and shift it to the left. And the question is going to be how much lower output are we going to have on our hands? And how far will the demand contraction go to take inflation down? I, the, the Fed actually has control over 50%, more than 50% of the CPI. And, and those things are going to be deflating. All the credit-sensitive stuff. And by the way, that includes rents. Mm. And so when I do my analysis, uh, what I'm looking at is that we have a huge supply response. Now, it could be true that food, food is 13% of the CPI. Energy is 8%. The shale guys are coming back more slowly. Uh, they've been constrained on a regulatory side. The productivity of the existing wells, we know that story. Food, well, what are we going to do? They're not they're not planting a new harvest in Ukraine this year. I'm not going to cross my fingers on what the U.S. corn or soybean or wheat harvest is going to be. Because I don't know. Uh, you know, I'm not Beaks uh, in that movie Trading Places, you know, where uh, I got an in with the, uh, with the uh, you know, the uh, Department of Agriculture. But I do know what's happening on the housing side. 
And I know that on the housing side that this run-up in rents, which has been a big factor in creating the inflation, rents are uh, 30% of the CPI, 40% of the core. Look at the data. Look at the response. You see, the thing is that nothing is, and if you're talking about, is there a shortage of construction workers? Last I saw the the level of construction employment in the United States, including specialty tradespeople, is at an all-time high. So maybe there are shortages uh, in low-skilled, uneducated uh, service sector, uh, in the uh, movie or restaurant or hotel industry, uh, maybe some parts of healthcare, education. But I could tell you, construction, the workers are there. And um, rental units, you're looking at building permits, housing starts, units under construction, rental units under construction are at their highest level uh, since 1974. And uh, they will morph into completions uh, in the next 12 months. And and I think I'd estimated that the number of rental units that are going to be added is going to be almost 2% of supply, which is unheard of. It'll be double what the rate of growth of rental demand is. So these uh, rental vacancies are going to hook up. The rental inflation is going to hook down. And, and so we'll see what happens with commodities. I mean, oil... <laughs> You know, oil's gone from technically zero during the worst part of the pandemic to over $100. Is it going up to 200 300 400 uh, You know, at some point, the demand contraction takes over. It's like what we saw in the 1970s. At some point, people just started to buy Toyota Corollas. Do you know what I mean? Uh, and so uh, I think the inflation side, I understand it's topical. It's what people... Everybody sees it. It's so visible. It's staring us in the face. But you see, uh, I've made my living looking at the forest past the trees. Okay. I look at the forest past the trees. I will let other people focus on the trees. Uh, I don't think the world has changed that much. Okay. We went up the biggest increase in the inflation rate since 1951. I know why it's happened. I can see the factors that would help bring it back down. And uh, it's not going to happen in one fell swoop, except I will say this much. I'll say that we were having the same conversation, you know, back in the summer of 2008. And back then it wasn't supply. Back then it was the China commodity super cycle. We let China into WTO, no questions asked, no restrictions, regrettably, double-digit economic growth, and they're buying 50 to 60% of all the commodity demand is China. So back then it wasn't about supply chain issues. It was, and I remember being at Merrill Lynch, getting into internal debates all the time about inflation, commodity super cycle, the Fed. You know, you go back to the summer of 2008, because of the oil price, the Fed under Bernanke shifted, shifted at the June meeting to a de facto tightening bias and Trichet at the ECB actually raised interest rates. How do you like that? Just months before Lehman, AIG, Merrill, who knows what's yeah. staring us in the face the next few months? Yeah. They switched to a tightening bias because of oil, and inflation in the United States back then was about to touch 6%. Now, I understand it's not 8%, but inflation got close to 6%, and everybody thought the Fed was going to raise rates. No, I remember this very clearly. I, I, I managed to lose money on rates because I was bullish and cut. And look where, look where inflation went in the next year, mm. minus 2 Minus, so people that say that inflation can't come down, inflation can't come down. Inflation went from about plus six in the summer of 08 to minus two in the summer of 09. So I would posit that maybe, maybe inflation is going to surprise to the downside. Now, in terms of the, the, the bond yield call, I would say this much. Focus on the stock market. What's the stock market telling you? What's the stock market telling you? When you start seeing the home building stocks down 30%, the home furnishing stocks down 50%, the retailing stocks are in a bear market. When you start seeing the, and not just that, but look at the bank stocks, bank stocks are in a bear market. You see, last year, all these things were doing well. Uh, all the interest rate sensitive stocks were rising with bond yields rising because they were saying, well, the the increase in market interest rates is not going to upset the apple cart for the economy. That basically we're having an increase in market rates without the Fed doing a bloody thing, uh, but the economy is accelerating uh, alongside these rising market rates. Uh, Don't forget that these are all interest-sensitive sectors, home building, home furnishings, consumer durables, uh, the banks, 
the auto part stocks, which are down like 35%. They're all interest sensitive, but they can go up with rising rates so long as the view that the rising rates aren't going to reverse the economy. Do you not see what's changed these last couple of months? This is starting before the war is rates are going up and these stocks are going down. I'll tell you right now, when rates are backing up and the banks are going down and the banks are in a bear market, that is the sign to me to start dipping the toes back into the treasury market because those are the sectors of the stock market that are screaming uncle. Yeah. When it comes to this rise in, in market rates and nobody can time the day, uh, but this is what happens at a peak at a peak in market rates, no matter where you are in the Fed tightening cycle, the peak in market rates happens when the interest sensitive sectors of the stock market begin to hide under the table and scream uncle. Okay. And we're actually as of today at that point. Yeah. That's it. That's very interesting. Cause you know, nothing like a, a, a point regarding the timing of a trade that makes my ears prick up. Um, how big should this trade be? I mean, uh, are, are you going to remortgage your house to buy rate futures or scale it for me? Should, should I make this my biggest trade? Well, look, and I, I got I got three sons, so I wouldn't go okay. so far as to put There's them only up. so far you can go, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm pretty sure I said at the beginning that you don't put all your eggs in one basket. and uh, You did? No such thing as a sure thing. So it's probably my biggest trade, but it wouldn't be my only trade. And I do believe that you could always have a plan B without a plan B. You don't have a plan. Um, so, you know, there might be some other um, hedges that make place that, that, that makes sense. Uh, like for example, if you noticed gold behaving very well, mm -hmm. yeah, gold behaving very well, even with the dollar breaking out to the high side. Oh, by the way, what isn't doing so well? Bitcoin. Sorry about that. That's, you know, um, just a uh, high beta trade on the stock market. I'm sorry uh, to think you might I, not I be. By the way, I, I, believe, I believe in crypto. I believe in blockchain. You do? Oh, okay. I, I just don't, I, I never heard, I, I just don't know why they're an asset class. I never heard of anybody saying to me, in my, in my 35 years, nobody said to me, can you put together an asset class of Swiss francs, Japanese yen, the euro, and the, and the, and the pound into a, into a, now you can have a basket of currencies. I never heard anybody say, throw it into, into an asset mix recommendation for me. If it's a cryptocurrency, if it's a currency, why is it an asset class? It's a currency. So what I'm saying is that, well, gold has always acted like a currency. Gold is behaving very well right now. By the way, Bitcoin isn't. Again, these are all signs of uh, the, um, the risk on trade morphing into the risk off trade. Uh, gold... So it comes down to your question before, if I'm wrong on inflation and therefore let's say that I'm wrong on the treasury call, uh, gold will be a good place to be. You said before, oh, do I want to buy two? Well, I'm not even saying buy two-year notes. Two-year notes would be a good call if you think the Fed is going to um, retract uh, on its pledge to raise interest rates to, well, now the market's priced for like 3% funds rate for next year. Okay. Uh, so you'll do fine if Fed expectations recede, but the longer the duration, the bigger the total return is going to be out the curve. So I'll put some conviction on the longer end of the curve, but you see, I'll barbell that because if I'm wrong on inflation, gold will do just fine. Uh, so I'd want to have what I would refer to as the 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 the, the bond bullion barbell because I love alliterations, um, but that's what I would be looking at. I think you want to be, I think you, look, you want to, you want to play it safe. You want to play it safe. The, you know, people are debating the shape of the yield curve. It's like a sport as if being inverted 20 basis points or positive slope 20 basis points. It's basically the stupidest debate I've ever seen. It's also, if it was a sport, it'd be a really boring sport. Right? It's a, yeah, well, go. it's a sport. The best, best surf cold for economists. <laughs> um, and the best call I made of the year, uh, when the curve started flattening, you know, back at the beginning of the year, I said, just watch when it inverts. Every Tom, Dick, and Harry economist is going to dream up reasons for you to ignore the yield curve, which they did. Oh, we'll focus on the curve, the the the, the Powell curve out to the bill market out to 18 months, or we'll look at the uh, the tips. The tips curve is, you know, as if there's a big time series with uh, the tips yield curve. So everybody's got their own definition of the yield curve. Three months, tens, twos, tens, five thirties. Look at what the stock market's telling you. 
look at the, just recently, the past few weeks, look what the rail, the rail stocks have gone down 10%. The transports are breaking down across the board. So look at the transports, transports, utilities. Uh, look at consumer discretionary versus consumer staples. Look at the financials. Look at the banks, the regional banks. Look at the wealth management stocks. The asset managers are down 20%. Yeah. The asset managers are telling you we are in, we are actually the ones who gather the assets are in a bear market. As they say in French, les jeux sont faits. The gig is up. You know, you asked him before what's on my mind, um, you know, over and beyond, say, Russia, Ukraine. I'll tell you what's on my mind. This fits in, by the way, to my deflation call. This is staring everybody in the face. The scariest number, the scariest number is $45 trillion. $45 trillion is the scariest number. And it's a number nobody knows. You know, everybody will up until we get the uh, March CPI number, oh, everybody knows 79 a first grader knows 7.9. They know the inflation rate. Nobody knows 45 trillion. And they're shocked when I tell them that that is the amount of naked long equity position on American household balance sheets. 45 trillion of equities, another 40 trillion dollars of residential real estate. And people say to me, look at the strength of the American household balance sheet because the assets are so inflated. That's what they were saying at Merrill when I was there back in 07. How can you be bearish on the economy? Look at the strength of the household balance sheet. Well, you see what happens is that the liabilities don't go down in value as the assets do in a recession. So $45 trillion, you know what the... You know what the amount of equities on household balance sheets were a decade ago? Not a century ago, a decade ago, $14 trillion. For It's more than tripled in a 10-year span. That's never happened before. And you see what's happened? What's happened is that everybody bought into the Wall Street promoter rhetoric, which, of course, it worked until it doesn't work, of what? FOMO. FOMO. Fear missing out. Tina, there is no alternative. The Fed always has your back. The Fed always has your back. So you see what happened in the cycle is nobody ever rebalanced. The dirty word wasn't transitory, okay? The dirty word was rebalancing. Nobody rebalanced their portfolio. So the asset mix share of the total household sector in equities is 40%. The long-run norm, if you believe in mean reversion, Bob Farrell's rule number one, you have to believe in mean reversion in this business, or you will not have a business. The long-run norm is 14%. It's now 40%. Household sector has never been this exposed to a bear market before. That's why I'm telling you the bear, well, you better pray hard, because I'm very nervous that if we go into a fundamental bear market, which, by the way, hasn't happened yet in the major averages, could create the conditions for a panic. Uh, and then we got to layer on the fact that it takes more than eight years of income now to buy a single family home in the United States. Right. Once again, the long run norm is five years. It's eight. Housing. I would actually posit that housing is more overvalued. Housing is as overvalued today across any metric as it was back in 06. And I think back in 06, we said, well, back then, you see, you weren't allowed to call it a housing bubble. I was not allowed to call it a housing bubble, but I was allowed actually to call it a housing mania, which I did. And it's as big today as it was back then. And it's not the level of interest rates that matter. It's the change. See, that's what I'm trying to say is that is that my deflation call is hitched to the call on what is going to happen to asset prices as they get reset for two things, higher rates and a much weaker economy. And then there's the feedback loop. And it's that contraction of the current strong household balance sheet that causes the demand contraction next year that feeds into the much lower CPI readings that aren't in the market right now. Yeah, I I can definitely see a reflexive loop, uh, another reflexive loop, a different one, the reverse of the positive reflexive loop we've had. Because a lot of... I had the other day... Uh, some of my wife's nephews, we got a bunch of these young men, uh, came around for some family get-together. I guess it must have been Thanksgiving last year. That's it. Thanksgiving last year, they came around. And, you know, normally they will avoid me like the plague because I am incredibly boring, right? It's, it's, uh, I've got nothing to offer a, a 19-year-old, or 24-year-old guy unless he's particularly obsessed by soccer. So they they crowded around me and I thought, what the hell's going on here? They're going to borrow money, aren't they? And 
uh, they started saying, what do you think of stocks? And I knew, what the hell? What happened to you guys? Why are you asking me this stupid question? And they said, well, you know, I, I've recently been speculating in stock markets. I said, oh, excellent. You're a 19-year-old trainee plumber, right? Yes, yes. Okay, cool. Why do you like stocks? Well, everyone likes stocks, right? Ah, okay. Everyone likes stocks. Note to self, rebalance portfolio. Uh, <laughs> move. And, you know, they were these guys are long a Bitcoin. They're long a stocks. Um, and they're focused on stuff that I don't think it's normal for 19 to 22-year-olds to be focused on. Uh, so we've probably had the kind of environment that creates that kind of self-referential bull market. Now I say that, I've rebalanced multiple times and other people have made so much more money out of this enormous rally in, in assets. Uh, you know, I, I'm an idiot, right? If I was so smart, I'd be rich. Um, but it's not difficult for me to worry about what happens if this turns around. Um, and when it turns around, uh, I don't, I have great skepticism about relying on the Fed or central bankers generally, or even even the fiscal authorities, uh, to decide to look through the amount of pain and squeeze out any inflation. So maybe the inflation gets squeezed out because they can't control it. But I think the central bankers and the fiscal authorities are just like me. They can resist anything apart from mild discomfort. But we'll leave it there. David, it was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on. And I hope, I really hope we can do it again soon. Oh, thanks for inviting me in. All right, that's a wrap on the next big trade. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, head over to realvision.com for financial insight you won't find anywhere else. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.